Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Good morning. I invite you to join with me again in prayer. Loving and faithful God, I pray that you would open your word to us, open our hearts and minds, prepare us to be transformed by your spirit as uh, together we look to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Over our last few weeks together, if you've been with us, you know that we have been looking at what we're calling but God moments in scripture. We've seen in both Old and New Testament there were times when the story was heading in one direction And that two-word phrase, but God, signals that things are about to take a turn. And today we will conclude that series. So far together we've seen that there are things that people in the stories of the Old New Testament could not do, but God could. We've seen people seeking, honestly, to harm others, and God intending good to come from even those tragic circumstances. We've seen Noah with his family afloat on an endless ocean, but God remembering them. We've seen that we have been stranded in a sea of sin, but God remembered us and in his mercy sent Jesus that we might be saved. We've seen that we, like many of the characters in God's word, have at times very mixed motives but thankfully God examines our hearts and shows us what really matters. And then last week we saw that we can learn from the story of Hagar, who was at her wit's end in the desert, that we follow and worship a God who sees us in our moments of deep need, who hears our cries, and who acts on our behalf. And this morning we will look at two stories, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, stories in which people find themselves... uh, not only at their wit's end, but in, in uh, life's peril. They are at an absolute crossroads and needing God's help, and we see that God rescues them. We see that God provides a way when they find no way of escape otherwise. So this morning we'll begin by looking at the story of Jonah, and we're told in the opening verses of the book of Jonah that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So here we have a a but Jonah moment. We see that God wants Jonah to do something, but Jonah heads exactly the opposite direction. And in this Old Testament book of Jonah, we're reintroduced to this prophet who we first see in, in a fleeting mention in the book of 2 Kings. In chapter 14, we read that King Jeroboam II, who was king of Israel in the 8th century B.C., was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hafer. 
And so in 2 Kings, Jonah, this prophet, appears and disappears in a single verse. And that's the last we hear of him until he gets his own book, this fascinating story that's the book of Jonah. As Rob has said, one of the minor prophets. In 2 Kings, Jonah had been portrayed briefly as a faithful prophet. The word he spoke on behalf of God came to be fulfilled in the reign of Jeroboam II. And in the book of Jonah, we're told at the opening, in the opening verses that God has a new assignment for this prophet. He's proven himself before, and God says, great, I've got a new job for you. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it so that they might be turned, the people there might turn toward repentance. And we're told that Jonah wants nothing to do with this new assignment. God tells Jonah that he wants the people of Nineveh, these Assyrians, to turn to him. He's threatening calamity, but we see that God's heart is actually that they would be saved, that they would turn to God in repentance and turn from their wicked ways. And we discover later, toward the end of this book, in Jonah 4.2, that Jonah doesn't like that idea of people of Nineveh turning and finding salvation from God. He doesn't like the idea of them discovering mercy at the hands of God. And he tells God, after the people repent and the city is spared, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And so this, this is just stunning that Jonah fesses up and says, you know, it's not that the job you gave me was too hard. It's not that I, I was afraid that, you know, some harm would befall me if I went to the Assyrians and told them to turn. Jonah says, my biggest fear in this is that people will be saved. God wanted Jonah to be a messenger of God's grace, but Jonah ran the other way. And we see that his disobedience had consequences. So let's roll back the tape now to Jonah 1 and see what happened when Jonah tried to run the other way. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault and that this, that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. 
Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And so amazingly, God continues to work through the life of Jonah, even as he's moved beyond uh, the role of reluctant missionary, as Rabbi said, to full-on disobedient servant, or so-called servant at this point. He's running away from the mission that God has given him as a chosen prophet. And despite the, the very mixed messages that Jonah is giving to this crew, as he says, I worship the God of Israel, and I'm running away from him in disobedience, apparently there's some combination of Jonah's testimony, his willingness to be thrown overboard, and the calming of the storm that's enough for those on the boat with Jonah to have some sort of transformational moment in their understanding of who the God of Israel really is. They offer God a sacrifice. They make vows. Now, probably what they did was some form of pagan worship they would have been familiar with. We're told that they were used to calling on each person's God. And so there's probably a sense here that they're trying to thank and appease this God of Jonah. But this is a turning point, a potential turning point in the spiritual lives of this crew. Meanwhile, Jonah finds himself splashing among the waves. Now the Lord, and I think we could fairly interpret this as then the Lord, or then God, or but God, provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah realized and confessed it was his fault, it was his responsibility that this raging storm, this calamity was falling on the ship and crew. And so he willingly surrendered himself to the sea. Apparently he was actually willing to, to die, to drown, that the crew might be saved. But God wasn't finished with Jonah yet. God had not rescinded the assignment that he had given him. God provided a huge fish that swallowed Jonah, and it was from within that fish that out bubbled this beautiful prayer of praise that Rob read for us earlier. And I don't know if you noticed, but this was a prayer of thanks for deliverance that Jonah prayed, apparently while he was still in the belly of that fish. And yet he wrote as if God had already delivered him. To the roots of the mountain I sank down, to the, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me up, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now sure, Jonah had reason to be thankful at this point. He had given himself up for dead. He thought he was going to drown, because he knew, even though the storm calmed when he went overboard. If he was brought back on board, he assumed things would get just as bad. And so he was done for. But God had provided this fish that he might be saved. But I can only imagine what Jonah was thinking about his 
current situation and circumstances as hour after hour went on and he was stuck in the belly of this beast. And yet he prayed a prayer to God, even though his odds of long-term survival probably seemed pretty slim. God indeed rescued Jonah, and God renewed his call on Jonah's life. We read that the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So this is take two for Jonah, kind of a reset, and this time he responds very differently. This time he responds with faithful obedience. And just as his disobedience had consequences, we see that so did his obedience. He preached to the people of the city. He delivered the message God gave him. We see the king of that city himself leads the way, models the way of leading all the people of that city into a season of repentance. They turn from their wicked ways and turn to God. And we see that when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And so at the end of the story, at the end of this pretty short book of Jonah, we're left with a city, city saved and a prophet perplexed. He's perplexed. Because at the end of the story, Jonah still doesn't like this idea of God's mercy being quite so extravagant. It's interesting that Jonah, who, who wrote this beautiful psalm of praise to God that for his own deliverance, when God rescued him from going down to the depths of the ocean, um, seems silent when thousands of people were saved because they turned to God. So we're left at the end of the story actually not knowing if Jonah ever fully comes to peace with this idea of God's extravagant mercy. God had a purpose that he wanted to accomplish through Jonah. He gave Jonah's life a purpose. He gave him a calling. And then God paved the way for the fulfillment of that purpose. He provided a way that Jonah might continue to live into that purpose even when he found himself in extreme and urgent need. And these are, the, these are a kind of but God moment we find often in Scripture. When people are given a mission from God, a purpose, a calling, and then hit some sort of obstacle, some sort of obstacle that might seem to derail the fulfillment of that purpose in and through their lives. And we see that God intervenes and provides a way. God opens a path and rescues his people so they can continue to fulfill God's purposes, even sometimes when they happen in that moment to be running away from God. And then in the New Testament book of Acts, we find another but God story of God's purpose and provision and protection, God's rescue. And in this case, it's another ship story, another storm story, but in Acts 27, we encounter the Apostle Paul on board a ship, not because he's running away from God, but because he's trying to live into God's purpose, his calling to be God's missionary and messenger. Paul is convinced that he's being sent to Rome on a mission from God. And as Paul sails from a harbor in Crete, we read in Acts 27 that when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. They'd been kind of weather-bound for a while. 
So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoist, hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. In other words, any hope of steering the ship. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the Lord, angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has given graciously into your hands the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it to be 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion, who was the one escorting him uh, to Rome, and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and keep them from carrying, kept them from carrying out their plan. 
He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. So if anyone ever tells you they think the Bible is boring, send them to Acts 27, or really the whole book of Acts. Here we have this account, and you hear we did this. So this is being told from the perspective of Luke, who at this point had joined Paul in his journey. And Paul knew that he had places to go. He had people to see. He knew God had given him a mission, was expecting and hoping and praying God would pave the way that he might fulfill it. And he had been told through an angel, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. The the situation with this storm seemed to the seasoned crew in this moment absolutely desperate, positively deadly. They figured there was no way out. They were taking extreme measures to have any chance of survival. But God sent words of assurance to Paul and through Paul, and he promised a safe rescue for everyone on board, and we see that God made it happen. God provided a way when all hope seemed lost. God opened a door to continued effective ministry for Paul. The God whom we serve, the God who calls us and loves us and gives our lives calling and purpose is a God who opens doors, who opens doors in our lives, and who then paves the way that as we walk through that door, allow us to live into our purpose. Now we know that when doors close in our lives, when we feel like things are shut off to us, those can be really unsettling moments. To be hoping or expecting we can proceed in a particular way and find a door slammed in our faces leaves us feeling stuck and anxious, sometimes frustrated, sometimes fearful. We wonder what's going on. But we worship a God who we trust and believe opens the doors that need to be opened in our lives. We see that Jonah actually tried to close the door that, that God had opened in front of him. God said, here, here's where you need to go. Jonah said, no thanks, tried to slam that door. And God opened another one, another door that happened to be the jaws of a big fish that Jonah went through. And in those moments, God reminded Jonah, you know that door opened for you? It's, it's still open. You still need to walk through it. And when a raging storm seemed to close the door on Paul's purpose, God provided a way. God kept the door open. And he revealed his power and his goodness to 276 people on board that ship. During these past seven weeks together, we've seen through stories in the Bible a God who consistently opens and closes all the right doors. We've witnessed a God who intervenes, who acts on behalf of the people God loves and calls. We've seen that when things or circumstances, or people are heading in the wrong direction, we find that but God acts out of his love and purpose. God acts when but God moments are people's only hope. 
whether or not they realize it at the time. And so my prayer is that as we encounter these kinds of stories in God's word to us, they would encourage us, encourage us to believe, to hope, to trust that God's still working to open and close doors. God is still working to pave the way that God's purposes for us and through us would be fulfilled, that God will continue to provide for us every step of the way. There are times when we will not always be completely faithful, when we don't execute flawlessly, but God will be faithful to us. I invite you to join me in prayer. Loving and faithful God, God who opens doors and who gives our lives purpose, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for how you provide for us, for how you work in our lives and keep on working even in moments when we're running from you. God, would you keep us faithful? Help us to learn from Jonah, not only about your faithfulness to rescue, but also about the importance of our obedience. Thank you for being a God who cares about us, who loves us, who listens. Thank you that but God moments still happen in our lives and in the lives of those whom we love. Keep us watching for those moments, Lord. Keep us watching for you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.